You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. All right, it's Howard Schweitzer and we are back for the Beltway Briefing. It's Wednesday, March 4th, the day after Super Tuesday. And Mark is busy sunning himself in the Caribbean. Jim Schultz is on assignment in California. And so I am joined today by my colleagues, Patrick Martin, who is in our Chicago office, but spends most of his time here in Washington. And Caitlin Caitlin Martin, sorry, Caitlin, no relation, uh, who spends, who's in our DC office with me. Um, Guys. Incredible night. Patrick, I'll start with you. What happened last night? Who wrote the, you know, when when I was a treasury um, in the run up to the financial crisis, there was a quote unquote, break the glass memo, where if the financial markets really went crazy, you know, you break the glass, pull out this memo and, and execute to save the financial system. I kind of feel like the Democratic Party was at a break the glass moment. So who wrote the break the glass memo, break the glass memo? And what did it say? And talk to me about last night. Yeah, it was uh, just a stunning show of support uh, for the former vice president all across the country in states where he was planning to compete to win and states that I think, frankly, 72 hours ago weren't even necessarily on their radar. Um, you know, it's it's hyperbole in politics to say you've never seen anything like this, but I, I I certainly haven't. And the support he received across the country in the, you know, almost 10 states that he won uh, was just extraordinary, given where we were just a couple weeks ago. And I think you're exactly right. What happened in the wake of South Carolina was a collective feeling from many in the party that um a Bernie Sanders nomination is something that we cannot just sit by and let happen uh, without trying to do something to prevent it. And the stars just really aligned for him. Um, And you just had a number of different factors that came into play, which I'm sure we'll go through uh, here today. But, uh, you know, you got to credit the vice president's team, you know, really smart, talented folks like Anita Dunn, who started to professionalize everything a few weeks ago, Um, And then you have to give a lot of credit to people who ran really great campaigns, but recognize that it it was not their time. Uh, And the show of support and the consolidation of support uh, really made last night possible. And I think it's going to set the tone uh, going forward in this primary. Who who was cracking skulls here (laughs) down the stretch? I mean, I've seen a lot. I've talked to people that say that Obama and Harry Reid were um, were on the phone, whipping votes, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, getting the the party apparatus behind Biden. What what have you heard? Yeah, I think party leaders, both former party leaders like the ones you mentioned, and and current party leaders, the Speaker and Minority Leader Schumer. I am sure you know all of them have aides uh, and former aides working on all these campaigns. Um, And there was a lot of pressure, I think, in the wake of South Carolina to consolidate support. You know, there's a lot of and and Howard and and Caitlin, you both know this. There's there's all these questions about what kind of deals got cut to get people out. 
I don't think it's necessarily uh, I don't think it works in that transactional of a way. I think you had people take a real hard look at what their path forward was and decided they still want to have a role in the future of the party. They want uh, they don't want a Bernie Sanders nomination. And you had a lot of people make decisions uh, all in the course of a couple of days uh, that really helped, I think, benefit the party. If you're of the assumption that Joe Biden is a better general election nominee than, than Bernie Sanders. But look, I think there was a lot of pressure from the party, uh, from from elders in the party. And I also think you just had candidates who uh, were able to say, this isn't my time. And uh, all that came together. I mean, I can't think of anyone who's had a better political week in a long time than Joe Biden uh, has had. It's this not week. even a week. It was 96 hours. I mean, on Saturday, it's it's important to just put in a context. On Saturday, Joe Biden won his his first presidential primary contest ever uh, in his victory in the South Carolina primary. And then in the course of just a few days, he's now won uh, 11 or 12. And it looks like he's the prohibitive favorite now. It's interesting. It's um, people are very focused on Mass on um, Texas and California. And look, there are still a lot of delegates to be counted. And, and that's something we should we should talk about. But, you know, focused on the South, maybe because I dislike the senator from Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm very focused on Massachusetts. Stunning result up there. Now, Sanders and Warren split the vote, I guess. But for Biden to win Massachusetts, to me, was perhaps one of the greatest signs. This wasn't just Biden winning in the South. It was Massachusetts. I guess Maine is still a little bit unclear, but Biden seems to have the edge in Maine and, and Minnesota. So Biden won some of the states that where, where the demographics are very different than they are in in South Carolina as well. So it's clearly carried over, Caitlin, to um, a number of different parts of the country. Um, definitely. And we know that uh, Senator Biden actually won Minnesota, beat Hillary there. So it's interesting to see how Biden was able to take it away from him in that state. And I think that, you know, Democrats are definitely breathing a big sigh of relief this morning. I'm curious to see, though, two things. One, how, you know, how Biden does. He's been stumbling a little bit. How, how he rides this wave. Is it going to be something that carries him into the next couple of weeks? We've seen, you know, some mistakes, some false starts with his campaign. Um, and I'm also curious to see Bloomberg. What happens with Bloomberg? Obviously, he had a terrible night yesterday, but he's still in the race. Excuse me. He won. Excuse me. He won <laughs> America. He won American Samoa. He did. And he did. I think that was one of the first races called. And Tulsi Gabbard actually also had a had an interesting showing there. But for all of the money that he's poured in to see, you know, what he does, does he take a hard look today and decide that, you know, his his whole point of getting involved in this race was anyone but Trump and ensure that um, the top of the ticket can can beat President Trump. So we'll we'll see how that plays out this week. But for sure, I think Democrats are breathing a big sigh of relief. Um, the Sanders people and, and you know, Sanders speech last night was was pretty strong and he he's still out there and we will see, um, you know, where where those voters go. And if this makes Biden, you know, pull a little bit more to the left. So there's yeah, look, I mean, the and, and the delegate math. Patrick, I don't entirely agree with your characterization that Biden's the prohibitive favorite. Um, 
I mean, look, this thing can turn on a dime. Look at look at the last hundred hours. Um, it it moved. This is lightning speed, warp speed, where it's sh it's shifting back and forth. Nobody saw this. And of course, if Mark were here, he would say he saw it, but he's not here, and so he can't. Um, we'll deal with that next week. But um, it, I think it can move very quickly, and and they're they're going to be counting delegates for a while because it takes time in in California. The delegate, the rules on delegate math are very complex, and at the end of the day, Biden's by all accounts going to be up, but he's not going to be up dramatically. And if you look at the um, forecast, look at 538, their forecast on the convention where we'll be at the convention, they still forecast a 60% chance after last night that nobody has a majority of the delegates going into the convention in July. By the way, given the coronavirus, if there even is a convention, in, in July. So I, I think that continues to be a, a wild card in all of this. But um, the delegate math, it matters. And and I, th I think it can still shift. It definitely can still shift. And, and who the favorite is can change, too. I mean, I, I, I would say that Bernie Sanders, just as much, you know, a week ago, uh, was the favorite. And I do think that uh, if you look at the results yesterday, you know, Sanders has proven he is just not able to grow his support. And he underperformed all across a whole host of states. And we're coming into a two week stretch where there's, you know, a few states here and there that are favorable to him. But there's a lot of states that are going to be favorable to the vice president. We'll have to see. Uh, Caitlin mentioned Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, my guess is uh, someone of of. You know, his love of data and analytics will come to the conclusion that $100 million per delegate is probably not a good investment uh, and will look to, to find a way to get out of the race. But, you know, this was always going to be uphill for Bernie, even if he was the leader in delegates going into the convention. If he goes into the convention and he's not the leader in delegates, he has absolutely no chance of getting the nomination. And I just think what you saw was... You know, his strategy running for president is all about placing bets and seeing if those bets pay off. You know, Mayor Pete placed a bet that if I win the first two states, that can push me into the, the later states and I'll get name recognition that I'll increase my support with minority groups. That didn't happen. Um, Bloomberg's bet was I'm betting on a really weak Vice President Biden and no other sort of real leader in the moderate lane. Uh, that bet didn't play off because support consolidated around the vice president right before Super Tuesday. Joe Biden's bet was always, if I can just get through South Carolina and have a commanding win, that'll springboard me. That bet did pay off. And as uh, you know, a week ago, it didn't look like it was going to, but that that strategy, uh, at least right now, seems to have, have worked. It's interesting. One, what did Biden do to change the arc of this thing? Because, yeah. He got I, really lucky, I think. Yeah. And, and I'll say this, this could not have happened to anyone else in the field. And the reason is you look at the states he won that he didn't even really campaign in. He is benefiting from being the most well-known person in the field. And that is because he was vice president for eight years. He has universal name recognition. Everyone knows who he is. And so as the field consolidated around him, he was able to benefit from that. 
you couldn't just do that as a as a one term senator or governor or someone that that isn't that well known. Um, he he really was uniquely positioned in this field to have the kind of day yesterday like he did. I, I just I'll be the first to say I didn't think it was going to happen. And I, I'm still stunned that it did. But uh, kudos to him and his team for for pulling it off. Right, Patrick, Caitlin, I, jump in. I think they said he had what one field office in the state of Virginia. But then again, yeah. being here and in the Beltway and understanding the demographics of Northern Virginia, I wasn't surprised to see him win Virginia. I think that Massachusetts, I was certainly a bit more surprised to see him um, take the lead in. And I think, you know, what about Elizabeth Warren? She's still in, really had a poor night last night. And, and you know, I've been thinking a bit about where do her voters go? I think the common assumption is that most of them might go to Bernie. But I don't know. I think there's a lot of folks that will actually go over to Joe Biden and how that, you know, how that'll help shape things out. Yeah, I agree. They don't all go to Sanders. I'm sure many of them do. But I don't think her. it's, you know, it's certainly... A more complicated coalition than than probably some of the pundits would would say. I think I think the the question is more assuming for the sake of argument that Biden is the nominee, do the Sanders Warren voters come out on election day twenty twenty general yeah. election day? Agreed. And you know Bernie Sanders supporters do not want to hear uh, some real talk, but th- this is this is real talk for you. There is an anti-Sanders majority within the party, mm-hmm. uh, which has been proven time and time again. Uh, the anti-Sanders majority wants more than anything to beat Donald Trump. And so they will consolidate, as was shown last night, uh, in whatever way they have to to do it. And if you listen to the Sanders folks, like, you know, I think all of us were watching returns come in, you listen to them on the cable networks, you see what they write online. They believe that any result other than Bernie Sanders being the nominee will have been rigged. They they will not accept, uh, similar to what I would say a lot of President Trump supporters probably are going to feel in the general, which is anything other than Donald Trump getting elected, uh, it must have been stolen or is rigged. So you have to kind of look at it for that perspective. And Howard, I think you're exactly right. Do, do, the question is, do they, do, does that keep, make them stay home? Uh, do some of them you know, decide to to vote the other way. I have no idea. I mean, Bernie really needs to decide whether he wants to make a difference or he wants to make a point. If he wants to make a point, which is, it it seems to me what he's been doing all along, then he should just keep sowing the seeds of division in the Democratic Party. He should do what he did four years ago and not immediately endorse Biden. I mean, he. I'm sorry, he's an absolute. He's ridiculous. And he's 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 not even a Democrat. He shouldn't be he shouldn't be running as a Democrat. The whole thing is is a joke. And frankly, it's about time that Democratic leaders called a spade a spade and got this thing together and got it to a place where the Democratic Party has a chance in November. And frankly, where where the country has a chance, Caitlin, I mean. You know, we were um, we were at Caitlin. You and I were with a client yesterday at at the White House. Um, we had had a meeting over there, including with the the political staff. And I think they were kind of licking their chops at the at the thought of um, continued division in in the Democratic Party. That's the that's what they were expecting the result to be. And as I see it, the result was. Um, 
bad for 1600 Pennsylvania as well. I think that, you know, you saw the president out last night speaking about division in the party and how, again, the Democrats are rigging this and, and, and rigging it against Bernie Sanders. And I do think that there are a lot of Sanders voters that, as we just discussed, are, are going to think that. And I, but I do, I do think that the White House is nervous about Joe Biden. But again, I don't, we're not, we're, I watched, you know, some of the news shows this morning, and it did seem like the inside the Beltway political class was cheering. They were very excited about Joe Biden. This plays squarely into Sanders supporters, you know, thinking and frustration in that we're all breathing a sigh of collective relief that normalcy might be restored and Joe Biden might be the candidate. I think there's a lot there, and I think there's going to be a lot of anger amongst his voters. And Again, I wouldn't count him out now, but I do still think there is division within the party. I don't think last night showed that, you know, it was a united party by any means. I think it showed that the political class and leadership of the Democratic Party wanted Joe Biden to win. And that's what happened last night. And that's what the political class is celebrating today. Look, it's a it's a big tent. The Democratic Party is a big tent. It's a can be a fairly undisciplined tent. And um, you know, so the progressive ideas that are being espoused are, you know, there's, they're not all bad and there's room for a broad spectrum of policy ideas as we go forward. Um, but as I've been saying for a long time for the Democrats, the only thing that should matter is beating Trump. And that's, that's the one and only thing because Nominating Bernie Sanders and losing to Donald Trump is is a, is a disastrous. It, it probably means the end of the Democratic Party as we know it, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that is, again, why you saw this level of consolidation around Joe Biden. There are a lot of people that still worry that the vice president is not uh, as strong a candidate as he, you know, he was several years ago. I think that's been proven in the debates. It's not like everyone who consolidated around Joe Biden over the last 72 hours is 100% sure uh, that he can beat Trump, but but they they are certain that Bernie Sanders cannot. And I, I just think what, the, again, it, it highlights what I said earlier, that the anti-Sanders majority in the party is a real thing. And he, I mean, it's one thing if he had matched his vote totals from 2016 he underperformed across a number of different states. I mean, the fact that I don't think Joe Biden made a single campaign appearance in Minnesota and the fact that Bernie Sanders lost the state of Minnesota. I mean, that's just extraordinary. And granted, it moved from a caucus to a primary. Uh, and that certainly benefited uh, Joe Biden. But I mean, if you look across all these states yesterday, if the Sanders people are trying to convince everyone else, both Democrats and Republicans, that they have the most grassroots support of any campaign in history, they're doing a poor job <laughs> of convincing us based right. on the voting. So where do we go from here? Where does Biden go from here? Because I believe what I said earlier. I don't think, I think the party came to him. I don't think he did anything. He hasn't said very much. Um, in, you know, he, I mean, he gave a speech after South Carolina. He's had these endorsements from Pete and Amy. Um, he gave speeches. Yeah. He, I saw an interview with him. Uh, maybe it was a CNN town hall or something that was that was very good. Um, uh, but I, I don't think he didn't do anything dramatic in the last hundred hours that suddenly changed who he is. I think the party just 
coalesced around him. And I guess I think maybe the less he says, the better. better. I agree. I think do no harm uh, going forward. So on March 10th, you're going to have, you know, six states. I think it's the delegate rich states are a little better for, for Biden, like Michigan. He'll do well in Mississippi, Missouri. I think Sanders would do well in North Dakota, Washington, Idaho. Um, and then you go to the March 14th states, like here in Illinois, uh, or I'm sorry, March 17th states. Sanders also benefits from, I think, a map coming up. You know, one of the things the Obama people did so well in 2008 is they sort of their whole view was if I can just sur- if we can just survive Super Tuesday uh, against Hillary, we're going to have an unbelievable run in the month or two after that, given the states. Sanders doesn't have uh, like a clear advantage in the upcoming states. So he's I mean, I, I think you're exactly right, Howard. If you're Joe Biden, continue to consolidate establishment support. Uh, you know, I think it's likely Mayor Bloomberg will get out. Uh, that'll be another probably boon to to his campaign and kind of consolidating that wing and and just do no harm and don't make any major mistakes uh, because I think it's coming to him. So there is supposed to be another debate, right? And yes. And, and it, it seems to me that, gosh, I mean, that's high stakes because Bernie can he's going to he, he's going to out debate Biden if. Does, does Elizabeth Warren, Caitlin, does she stay in? Does she get out? What do you think? I mean, you're, you're on the other side of the aisle, but what do you think about my favorite senator? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think for a lot of her. What's her play? I, I don't. I, I could argue both directions with her. I think it would be smart for her to get out. I think, you know, Bernie Sanders would like to see her get out and consolidate some of her support amongst, you know, his supporters. But. I also think she's a bit stubborn and she's got a lot to say. And, you know, she was the first to put out policy proposals outlining what the costs would be for her Medicare for all plan. And she's a very thoughtful, you know, from, from a policy standpoint, I just, I don't know if she stays in there's it's, it's hopeless for her at this point. It seems, I don't know why she would other than a scholastic she couldn't even exercise. Win her and, right. Right. Or I mean, that's pathetic. State. Yeah. She should go back to being a senator and serving her constituents, but she's actually a decent senator and she's even done some things that are that are working across the aisle and she espouses, you know, her progressive position. She has a voice. She's a good senator. She's not a clearly she's not a good presidential candidate because a few months ago, it looked like she it was going to race runner. to the nomination. I mean, she was the front runner for a time, and it looked like she was going to run away with the thing, and she just floundered. And then people started vote, and then people started voting. Right? Um, you know, I I think I think you guys are exactly right. You know, her her calculus is a little more complicated. My guess is if she can afford to stay in, she will. Um, there's not and really she an can inc- because it, she's raised a ton of money. Yeah. Now her overhead, as everyone's read, it, it, you know, is significant. I think she pays about nine million dollars a month in in staff salary and union contracts and everything else. I mean, she's got a lot of more campaign overhead than than anyone else does. But she also doesn't have a natural constituency on either side. I don't I don't think Sanders or Biden is really a natural endorsement for her. She She thinks it should be her. And I assume if she can continue to get even just some delegates, um, she will stay in to play a greater role 
at the convention. I, I, I just think that's probably her, her calculus. She raises, she's not raising her money from the type of people that are telling all these people to get out, you know, Pete, Amy, their donors, their supporters, their backers, you know, they were starting to get nervous. Warren doesn't have that problem. If her money dries up online, that's a different, uh, a different calculus. And if she can make it to the next debate, it's going to be her and these two guys in their seventies. That could, that's another made for TV opportunity for her to say, I'm the best uh, choice between the three of us. And again, it's not winning her States, but if she can get enough delegates to stay relevant, I don't think she's going to get out. And she's been relatively strong in her debate performances, too. I mean, she certainly does play a role on that stage. The question in my mind is, does she attack Biden? Yep. Does she does she go after Biden? Let's assume Bloomberg's off the state. Let's assume it's the three of them. Does she go after Biden? Does she become yeah. Bernie's uh, surrogate, so to speak, on the stage and, and take out Biden? I, I could I, I don't know. Yeah, it depends where she wants to be. Definitely. She's got a tough call because I think a lot of her policies and her heart and many of her supporters are probably uh, more on the are right. certainly more on the progressive side and, and kind of in the Bernie camp. But she wants to be in the game, too. And while her and the vice president have had a long history and don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues, this goes all the way back to committee she's testifying on. And when he was in the Senate, uh, there's clearly uh, not a whole lot of love lost there. But she's she wants to be in the game. And, you know, to what degree that influences how she uh, performs in the debate and who she sort of uh, trains her fire against. I mean, that'll be really interesting. She's not a revolutionary like like Sanders. She's a hard, she's a Harvard law professor. Yeah. And I think (laughs) that's her whole, her whole point. Uh, And and the voters clearly aren't buying it given how uh, poorly she's performed across all of, I mean, she hasn't had a top two finish in any state uh, up to this point. Which is kind of remarkable, but her the whole point of her candidacy is exactly that, which is I'm not Biden, I'm not Sanders, I'm your I'm your best bet. It's just it doesn't seem like the voters are buying it. Yeah, I, I agree. So um, let's shift topics for for a second. We did this at the end of our last Beltway briefing. Coronavirus, uh, Caitlin, you and I were out and about all day yesterday. I think we had seven different meetings back and forth around town. I've got a bunch more today. It's all. Everybody on the Hill, everybody in the administration, it's all everybody we met with yesterday was was talking about. Um, and and look, who knows where it, where it's going? Clearly, it's it's out there. It's spreading. Um, and people in government are extremely nervous and don't exactly know how to how to position themselves and it could, Caitlin, play a role in in the race here. I mean, it could it could impact the ability to convene. It could impact Trump's ability to hold rallies, um, or not. We don't really know, um, but it's a wild card. It's definitely a wild card. I think we saw that with some of the stock market, you know, sinks over the past couple of days, and I think that. Everyone's closely watching how President Trump handles this crisis and how the government handles this. And I, I think this is probably the single most detrimental thing to the administration right now, this and their handling of it. I mean, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had record high stock market numbers and things were looking great from an economic perspective. And now we've got, you know, the Democratic Party rallying behind a, a normal, somewhat moderate candidate. And we've got this this crisis that seemingly came out of nowhere that's really, I think, going to impact 
what happens in November from a political standpoint um, and from a policy standpoint. And and it's, you know, anyone's game right now. And I think everyone's just really closely watching to see how this administration handles a, a crisis not of its own making, to be frank. Yeah, I mean, this is different. Um, the, Trump can't, you know, he didn't start this crisis. He can't talk his way back from it. It is not something he can control. And and the narrative around it, um, you know, should be driven, I think, by the experts in government and not by the White House. I think he's making a huge mistake putting Pence in charge, um, having every press conference come from the White House. He's, he's making a mistake both operationally and politically in, in owning the crisis. And, and it may come back to haunt him. On the other hand, maybe economically, you know, it, there was a lot of froth in, in the economy, in the markets rather. And, and, and maybe this, I mean, it, it, I, it's not good for him. He did tweet in 2012 that if the stock market drops a thousand points on a president's watch, he should immediately be impeached. So, um, uh, I bet, well, he probably doesn't care about that tweet eight years ago, but I thought it was funny, um, or ironic rather, uh, but maybe it gives him an excuse for the fact that there's an economic pullback. Maybe it doesn't impact him as much as it would if in the normal course of economic events, the market were to pull back. I, I don't know, Patrick, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think you can see it cutting both ways. The normal rules just never seem to apply to him. So <laughs> while right. I'm while while I'm hesitant to, you know, kind of predict one way or another how it how it will affect him, you know, the, a couple of things. One, and Caitlin, you you uh, kind of touched on this. It is just amazing this when something like this happens, it's such a reminder of how fragile things are. Um, both from an economic standpoint and just in how we handle these types of situations nationally. Uh, two, it's a reminder, and Howard, you spent uh, a, a great number of years in government, in operations, managerial roles. It, it takes situations like this to, to remind uh, at least, I think, a lot of people why having experts in charge of government is so important. And you know, you can tell the White House is is reeling from this. They're trying to take control of it, but they are not operationally set up for a whole host of reasons to to manage it properly. And uh, it's situations like this are a reminder of the role government is supposed to play. And when it's not happening the way it's supposed to work, it's it's evident uh, that there's a problem. Right. The bureaucracy matters. Right. The bureaucracy matters. And um the message matters. The message is critical. And I think what we saw yesterday, Caitlin, in our travels around town, both sides of the aisle, uh, the Senate, the House, the White House, and, and the agencies is they don't quite, they haven't coalesced around, around a message on this thing. Um, you know, the public pays much more attention, the markets for one thing, um, pay much more attention to the announcement than they do the actual execution of, of a program. Um, so, and, and I just don't think, you know, I just don't think that there's a coherent approach being articulated by government. We had some members that we talked to yesterday, Caitlin, that um, were talking about holding town halls and 
kind of being out front and trying to organize messaging. And we had uh, we had other members of Congress say to us, you know, what what we're going to do is not fan the flames. We're going to point people toward the local authorities. That's where the crisis management from a health point of view needs to take place. The federal government, um, the messaging is important, but I'm not going to go out there and get people more worked up than they're already going to be. I'm going to let things um, kind of play out at a local level and point people toward the local level. I think the White House is still trying to find its voice. So the health effects are TBD, but the 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 messaging from Washington has has a ways to go on this thing. Definitely. So, well, back to the politics, uh, guys, it's going to be interesting. Uh, who knew? Who knew we'd be sitting here on March 4th and Joe Biden would be uh, seemingly in the in the poll position? It certainly didn't look like that a week ago. I can't wait for Mark to get back next week and do the ITYS <laughs> to us and uh, tell us how he knew all the, the whole time that the the moderates would coalesce around around Joe, which is like. I mean, I don't know how many different candidates he's been on this selection cycle, but yeah, we've got we got plenty of ammo to remind him of uh, changes yeah. in opinion but over the course. We'll of have that. some fun. So we'll be back next week. Patrick and Caitlin, thanks so much for joining this week. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Great. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Howard. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.